You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the Library and to the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors both past and present. I am Philippa Duclou from the Stanton Library team. Today I have the pleasure of introducing Jamel Wells, here to talk about her new book, The Outback Court Reporter. Jamel is an ABC television and radio newsreader and a senior court reporter for New South Wales. Over almost 20 years, she has covered some of Australia's highest profile cases, including inquiries into the convictions of Kathleen Folbig, the criminal trials of Eddie Obede and Ian MacDonald, and the Sydney Siege Inquest. Jamel's previous book, The Court Reporter, was about her career covering city courts. It was long listed for the Ned Kelly Australian Crime Writing Award and the Davitt Australian Women Writers Award. In her new book, Jamel takes a legal road trip to country towns across Australia. She has seen the light and quirky side of country courts, in cases with missing lollipops and exploding chocolate milk in a supermarket and a stolen cat flap. She has also seen the harsh and dark side of outback life and domestic violence, drug use and high rates of Indigenous incarceration. Jamel's new book is also a timely reminder of the need for reform as country magistrates struggle with massive caseloads and limited resources in communities still disadvantaged by the vastness of our continent. Anyone interested in journalism and true crime will enjoy her new book. Please join me in turning your mobiles to silent and giving a warm welcome to Jamel Wells. Thanks, Philippa, for a lovely introduction and thank you all for coming out this afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a very rainy, miserable day outside. I'm pleasantly surprised how many of you have braved the wet weather. Um, I'm Jamel. And as Philippa mentioned, I'm the ABC's senior court reporter. And I have spent most of my working life uh, in Sydney, but I grew up in a little outback town of Cobar in western New South Wales, and I moved away from there to, when I finished school, I went to school there to study and to pursue my career. And although, as Philippa mentioned, I mostly cover courts in Sydney, I occasionally travel to country towns in the outback to do a court or a legal affairs story. And I'll let you in on a bit of a secret. I also like to visit outback courts when I'm not working. I like to just go for a drive and drop in on them because I think they can tell you a lot about the life and the fiefdoms in a country town. After I, I wrote my first book, The Court Reporter, about my work in Sydney, I took a judicial road trip around parts of country Australia and my experiences and what I saw and the people I talked to reinforced my suspicion that Australia is a country where justice is dictated by postcode. It can be hard for an outsider to understand being in a country town, country life, because it's quite often, although friendly and with a great sense of community, a very closed community and 
outsiders or blow-ins, as they're sometimes called by the people who live in the town, are sometimes not accepted. But having grown up in the bush, I've found it very easy to drop in and out of towns everywhere. I found the great thing about outback courts was the openness and the friendliness of most of the court staff, the solicitors and the magistrates who work in them. Many of them invest a lot of themselves in the local community because they're really trying to make a difference. A few are, are a bit more guarded and, and not used to having media scrutiny in the courtroom or, or the town, but mostly they were very grateful that someone was actually interested in their work because the media doesn't often report on what goes on in a country courtroom. So I came across magistrates, police officers, legal aid solicitors and community members who were trying to bring the crime rates down in little towns and help disadvantaged communities who really needed help. And they were so forthcoming with information about how their town worked and, and the jobs that they were doing. As Philippa mentioned, I, I have seen the lighter side of outback courts and I want to share some of those lighter moments with you first. Philippa mentioned the man who stole a cat flap from Bunnings. Well, that was at Foster on the mid-north coast and I just dropped into Foster local court one day on the way back from the William Tyrrell inquest which was being held at that stage at Taree. And I came across a young man, he would have been about 19, he had tattoos all down his legs and arms and he had thongs and shorts on and he had stolen a $100, $150, I should say, dollar cat flap from Bunnings and then tried to get a refund at the cashier because he said it wasn't suitable. Now, the magistrate said, your offence is at the lower end of the range of seriousness, but I want you to get your drug habit under control because if your drug habit's under control, your shoplifting will be under control. And if the drug habit gets worse, the stakes might up for the shoplifting, you might be committing more serious offences in the future. I also came across a woman who sued her neighbour after his dog broke into her house and impregnated her prized poodles. <laughs> now, this, this was a mixed breed dog. It ate food from the pantry, it destroyed the furniture, it peed all over the house. And one of the poodles had a litter of puppies and a couple of the puppies later died. So the woman buried them in her backyard and put little crucifixes on them. Now, she went to court before a magistrate, Daryl Pierce, who is one of the longest serving magistrates in New South Wales and has served at most country courthouses in New South Wales. Now, at first, he couldn't stop laughing at the claims this woman was making, so he was pretending to drop things on the floor and pick them up to contain his laughter. But he then realised this woman was very serious, so he awarded her not the thousands of dollars she was after for her pain and suffering and the stress caused to her poodles, but a few hundred dollars. And he told me afterwards that it made him realise you just don't know what's important to people. For this woman, her prized poodles were her life, they were her love, and she took this very seriously. Another case I came across was a serial shoplifter at Gunnedah in country New South Wales. Now, this woman's shoplifting was so bad, the magistrate, Roger Prowse, imposed bail conditions on her that 
I'd never come across before, but I thought they were very practical for a country town. He banned her from every shop in town. He said, you can't go into the service station, best and less, the butcher, the locksmith, the hardware store, the hot bread shop, any cafes or the optometrist. And this is what the magistrate told the court. He said, if she doesn't go into retail premises, she can't flog anything. The good business people of Gunnedah might like that, as opposed to the coffers being ripped off them. Now, you might think that's very harsh, but in a town like Gunnedah, it was very practical. And I even learned that the woman was accused of stealing pot plants from the Gunnedah train station platform. <laughs> You're probably now wanting to know about the missing lollipops and exploding milk cartons that Philippa mentioned. Well, this serious crime or alleged crime happened in my hometown of Coba. I called into court there around November 2019. And just to paint a picture for you, Coba local court sits about once a month. There's no permanent magistrate in the court. It's a visiting magistrate. And on this particular day, it was Magistrate Claire Girotto. The temperature was well above 40 degrees, which is usual Cobar heat. That's what I'm used to. The gauze on the bottom of the court door was torn. The flies were getting in and I could hear the air conditioning whirring inside. There were the usual cases on the court list for the day. Domestic violence, traffic offences, um, a few cancelled licences, a few things that got adjourned to another date. But then a really well-known local solicitor, there were two in the town at the time, was representing a man charged with one count of theft. Now, the man was a former manager accused of stealing a box of Chupa Chups lollipops from one of the town's two supermarkets, the Burgess IGA. The prosecution case was that he went into a storeroom, put the lollipops on a trolley, took them outside, and that's the last time they were seen. But the man argued that he had thrown the lollipops away because milk had spilt all over them and destroyed them. And he said, it was part of my job to get rid of damaged stock. We couldn't sell it. Now, the prosecutor told the court that there were 10 photos as part of the police case in which the accused man could be seen wearing black clothing, which was the IGA staff uniform. The court also heard there were more than half a dozen witnesses. At that point, the magistrate looked up and raised her eyes. She was a little alarmed that there would be so many witnesses in a matter that I think she thought would be over in an hour or two. It actually took up two days of court time. Now, I'll just tell you a little bit about this alleged crime scene. It's now a supermarket. It's a huge open-air sort of barn. But when I was a little girl growing up in Cobar, it was a picture theatre, an open-air picture theatre. And up the back, half undercover, were hardback seats and my mum and dad and I would get dressed up and we would go on a Friday or Saturday night and see the pictures because that was one of the few things to do in Coba and we would dress up in our good clothes. Up the front in canvas seats, all the, the young teenagers, the rougher people in Cobar sat and they would do things like throw toilet rolls in the air and firecrackers and cheer and clap and carry on. 
But I remember there was a brilliant usher. She was one of the best ushers I've ever seen. Her name was Elaine Burgess. She was the daughter of the cinema owner. And she would charge down the aisle with a torch and anyone misbehaving would get whacked on the back of the head with a torch. She had such authority, it was amazing. And one night I even saw her drag a kid outside by his ear. She was incredible. Now, the supermarket now sells everything, food, gardening products, underwear, clothing, because a lot of the retail shops that were in Cobar when I was a little girl have closed down now. It's uh, Every time I go back there, there's an empty shop window. So it's very hard uh, to buy basic clothing and things like shoes and garden fertiliser and hardware. So this supermarket stocks the full gamut and it employs a lot of people. Now, most of the witnesses at this case involving the missing Chuppa Chups lollipops were people I'd gone to school with decades earlier. So I walked out on the court veranda and there are all these people in their IGA uniform. Now, they were questioned for two days about the operations of the supermarket. And I'll give you just a little bit of the questioning that was put to some of these witnesses. The first witness was a store person and a filler and he said that he usually started work at 8 o'clock in the morning but the day the lollipops disappeared, the manager told him he could go home early. He said, I was suspicious things were going missing. And then the witness said when filling the shelves the next day he opened a box of chupa chups that were usually displayed in aisle two and he was going to scan them with his little scan gun but he wondered how many could have sold in a week. There were about a 1,000 of them. The next witness was a 50-year-old man who had black, thick-rimmed glasses, very serious, and he said when he did the annual stock take, the chupa chups were about 1,000 short. So after getting a tip-off from the first witness, he went back through the CCTV footage. The prosecutor said to this man at one point, have you come across Barista Brothers chocolate-flavoured milk spontaneously blowing up? And the witness looked a bit confused and said no. And then the prosecutor said, well, could it? And he said, well, maybe, I've not seen it, but it could. Then under cross-examination, the accused thief's solicitor also grilled the witness about the exploding milk. He said... My friend mentioned a spontaneous event with Barista Brothers chocolate-flavoured milk and I put it to you that if impaled by a sharp object, the contents of Barista Brothers chocolate milk may run out. The witness said, well, it would have to be a very sharp object. Now, this questioning, as I mentioned, went on for two days and I learnt so much about the operations of my country town's hometown supermarket. All the evidence came to an end and then, as is usual in court the prosecutor and the defence solicitor summed up their case for the magistrate. The accused man's solicitor said that the lid may have been left off the tin of chupa chups, so they could have been damaged by a sharp object piercing them and by Barista Brothers chocolate-flavoured milk pouring all over them. And, and this was part of the solicitor's closing address. He said, Your Honour, witnesses said objects got thrown around, hurled and stacked in the storeroom. There is no evidence they weren't shifted and shoved. Damage can be done, especially with milk products. And my client said milk spilt and exploded. The magistrate, Magistrate Gerardo, a very patient, kind woman, 
didn't take long to reach a verdict. She acquitted the man. She said he was a manager, he was entitled to throw away damaged stock and there was no uh, proof beyond reasonable doubt that he had stolen the Chupa Chups lollipops. So the prosecutor, very defeated, was packing his things back in his bag. The local solicitor was beaming, running up, shaking the man's hand. And when the court officer cleared the jug and the glasses away from the desk, the magistrate leant forward and said, those are two days of our lives. We will never reclaim. (laughs) One defamation case I came across in the country actually ended up in the Supreme Court in Sydney after a country women's association member sued the organisation because she was sacked as branch secretary. Now, This woman in her 60s with no legal training represented herself in court. At one point she called the CWA barrister dyslexic and she put her own husband in the witness box quizzing him about the local theatrical society. The court heard that she was sacked because she was rude and horrible to people. She told one CWA colleague via email that she was a hopeless secretary, hopeless president and treasurer, and she congratulated her on a 100% failure rate. Now, a judge ruled in favour of the CWA, finding that the woman who tried to sue was, and I quote, belligerent, rude and overbearing. Now, at the same time, in Sydney, I was covering Geoffrey Rush's high-profile defamation case against the Daily Telegraph, and I saw some of Australia's best-known actors and directors like Judy Davis and Robin Nevin in the witness box, but it wasn't nearly as entertaining as this CWA matter. <laughs> I've come across outback courtrooms with dogs and cats in them, ducks, snakes and sharks in a nearby river, At Emerald Magistrates Court in country Queensland, I met solicitors who told me they were offered bags of gems as payment for their services and who represented clients in court disputes involving ownership of a camel and mining leases. I came across court watchers who gathered around while on school tuck shop duty to look up the Lawlink website court list for their town for the day to see who from the town might be on the list. I asked one woman, I said, you know you could walk into the local court any day it's sitting and watch from the public gallery. That's your right as a member of the general public. And she said, no. She said, I I wouldn't dare do that because my neighbours might think I was being belted up or that I'd been booked for speeding. But she said, we gather around at Tuck Shop and we we see. And she said, you'd be surprised who turns up on that court list. It's a bit sticky-beaky, I know, but we really enjoy doing it. I also came across court watchers who travelled um, to Taree on the mid-north coast for the Taree section of the William Tyrrell inquest and some of them were people who caught the XPT from Sydney, some came from nearby towns like Harrington Waters and there were some people there who were very uh, disturbed and, and troubled by the case. They weren't related to the Tyrrell family, the biological family, the adoptive family. They had they weren't witnesses, they were just interested in the case. And one woman, on one day when the hearing was adjourned, I I was sitting in the public gallery talking to her and she just burst into tears and sobbed uncontrollably because she was so sad that this little boy was missing. And one of the court officers told me a few hours later that he thought a lot of people who'd come to watch were people who had been in care themselves as children. They'd had a bad experience of welfare and of being in foster care. And that's why they they felt a connection and felt really troubled by what had happened to little William.
that's the lighter side of Outback Courts. The thing that I knew but really hit me hard when I saw it firsthand and talked to some of the people involved was the dark side of Outback Courts. I saw a shortage of solicitors, I saw too few translators for Indigenous people and I saw massive cuts to legal aid. A survey by the Law Society of New South Wales around 2022 found that 49% of all the state's solicitors are in the Sydney CBD, 33% in the suburbs of Sydney and only 12%, that's 12% in regional New South Wales. Another survey found that 19 local government areas in the state have no practising solicitors at all. What does this mean? Well, it means that in the state's west in particular, especially in remote Indigenous communities, many people are forced to represent themselves without the right legal knowledge and training. They don't understand the charges that they're facing in court. They plead guilty to things really quickly, hoping to resolve the matter. And the magistrates who work there have very limited options in terms of bail and rehabilitation programs. New South Wales is not the only state with these shortages. Outback magistrates work under an incredible amount of pressure. They're working on their own with big caseloads. Some of the courts I sit in in Sydney, a local court might have 20, 30 matters a day. I sat in local courts that had 60, 80 matters and the magistrates just didn't take a lunch break. No such thing as morning tea, no lunch. They just ploughed through the list to try to get it done. Much of the justice that is dispensed in remote parts of Australia, Western Australia, the Northern Territory, is uh, fly in, fly out, like our health system and our mining industry. In remote parts of the Northern Territory, for example, when court's sitting, the whole court flies in for the day. And by that I mean the judge, the prosecutor, the court staff, the computers, the chairs, the tables. There are no courtrooms. They hold their court sittings in a town hall or a local police station. So the judge sets up, sits on a chair and a wooden table. The defendants are coming in and out of court with no shoes on. And their legal aid lawyers sometimes have maybe three to five minutes with them before their matter is heard. That's how busy it is. Cuts to um, legal services for Indigenous people also mean that a lot of their matters just have to be referred to courts in Darwin or, or a bigger regional centre. And you might say, that's okay, that can be heard in another court. But for them, travelling eight to ten hours is a huge undertaking. Then they have to pay for accommodation in the town where their court matter is being heard. They might not have a car, so um, they don't have a support network with them. So that's something we forget about in a city. We don't see that in a city. I came across one New South Wales magistrate. Um, she's in her 60s, fantastic magistrate. She was uh, hearing local court cases at Burke in outback New South Wales and three teenagers broke into her motel room and tried to steal her handbag. They uh, didn't succeed. She had, had a go at them and fought back. Then they came back again for a second go. That's the sort of uh, pressure and stress magistrates are working under. Another magistrate told me that when he first went to work at Griffith in New South Wales, um, mafia bosses turned up on his doorstep with 
boxes of fruit and flowers because they thought he was going to be the coroner at an inquest the next day and he had to say no go away go home I can't accept them um, he also got bogged on an outback road one day and um, he said a carload of uh, young men pulled up to help him and they got him out and his suit was ruined by the mud and and he said oh what are you um, what are you heading to town for and they said oh we're all appearing in court today <laughs> he said yes yeah, so am I so he had to stand their case over and put them onto another magistrate because because it would have been a conflict of interest. I spoke exclusively to a district court judge about the problems ice causes, the drug ice in country towns, especially for young Indigenous people. And he told me that on some of the missions around towns like Moree, um, children as young as 12 are addicted to the drug ice. And because there is no rehabilitation uh, it is not just not an option. The travel is too far. It's very, very hard to break the cycle. He shared with me the harrowing case of two young boys who almost bashed a 78-year-old woman to death after breaking into her home to steal the cash she'd saved for a family holiday. Now, um, one of these boys was 12 and expressed no remorse. So, as a judge, how do you deal with that? He gave these two young boys a custodial sentence in juvenile detention because he thought they needed some structure in their life. And the matter then went to a higher court in Sydney and the panel of judges in the higher court thought that the sentence was too harsh and overturned it, so these young boys walked free. So that judge's dilemma is how do I make a difference? In some outback courts I went to, places like Walgett, violence, poverty, social deprivation, are still normalised. There are people charged with driving offences who don't even know how to get a copy of their birth certificate. And when you live in a country town like that, you need a car. There's no public transport. So if you lose your licence, you could be out of work as well. Sitting in on sale, magistrates court in Victoria one Christmas showed me just how difficult it is for people to break the cycle of drug use in country towns and how the stigma and shame of reporting domestic violence means much of it goes unreported. I had so many magistrates tell me that um, people would lay charges and then the matter was due to come before court and they would pull out because it would be a matter of coming to court and having the alleged offender sitting right where you are now, the offender's family. It's just too incestuous in a country town. That's the downside of outback courts. I'm still disturbed by what I saw at Port Augusta Magistrates Court in South Australia. I saw dozens of young people no older than 18, 19 in jail for months on assault charges just waiting to get a bail hearing. Now, if you were charged with assault in Sydney, chances are you'd get bail in a couple of days if your offence wasn't at the high end of the serious scale. Some of these people had waited months and one young fellow, this is really disturbing, I'll, I'll warn you, he had been in foster care three times as a child. He'd been sexually abused three times in foster care. He was in prison and he was back before the court because he had attacked and assaulted a prison guard in court, uh, in jail, I should say. What we heard in court was that the prison guard was trying to do a drug search of this young man and he said, unless you cooperate, mate, I'll do this for you. So the young kid just lost it and head-butted the prison guard, injured the prison guard, but the magistrate said this. He said, I acknowledge that the court staff set upon 
um, the offender and caused him serious injury. So he was bashed by the court staff, and uh, by the prison staff, I should say. And then the magistrate actually um, extended his jail sentence because he said, you can't go assaulting prison guards. Now, that is technically right, but I looked at this young fellow and I thought, what chance did you have? He wasn't receiving counselling. Um, he wasn't receiving any help for the trauma that he'd suffered as a child. One chapter of my book is about um, an outback health inquiry. And um, there are sometimes inquests and inquiries, ju judicial inquiries and uh, investigations into things held in country towns, but not very often. They're usually held in Sydney. This was an inquiry into regional health. It was a statewide inquiry. It went for about a year. And I uh, fought for this inquiry along with Liz Hayes from 60 Minutes after my father, 85-year-old Alan Wells, and her father, Brian Ryan, died following appalling treatment in regional hospitals. It was very hard to get this inquiry up, and it was very hard to encourage other people to speak up and come forward. In the end, we ended up getting about 800 submissions. So for about a year, RSL clubs and community halls around the state became hearing rooms, little mini courtrooms for this inquiry into regional health. There were damning findings. They were that um, frontline staff are operating in a culture of fear. They're too frightened to speak up about critical staff shortages. And it's leading to poorer health out outcomes for patients that the life expectancy in country towns is actually going backwards. So that took up a whole chapter of the book because it was very close to my heart and I encountered uh, for months and months, resistance to holding the inquiry at all. At one point, I was told um, by officials at state parliament that the inquiry could not be live streamed. I didn't see any sense in that because at the time, uh, council meetings were being live streamed and I thought, surely the technology is there and I wanted the country people of New South Wales to be able to hear the evidence from this inquiry. Uh, a couple of days after I rang around some of the politicians bingo, it was live streamed and country people were able to dial into it. We heard things at that inquiry like a lot of regional hospitals don't have doctors. I will repeat that. They don't have doctors. They have um, nurses who are overworked and beside themselves who are trying to triage patients. They have telehealth for which they have to queue for. And uh, they don't stock basic things like blood supplies. So... This was not just um, Coba Hospital, where, where my dad was, but a lot of hospitals around the state. So they're just some of the basic things um, th that are going on in regional hospitals. And May this year marks two years since the inquiry findings were handed down. I am yet to see uh, much improvement or much change, um, but I'm, I'm still hoping, and uh, maybe it needs to be looked into further. I, I met an amazing uh, range of people in outback courts. I met people charged with offences, their families. I met solicitors. I met magistrates. I met prosecutors. I met police. I met one police officer who, in the town of Burke, uh, stayed there for about seven years. He was only um, sent there for two or three, but he wanted to stay. His family liked it there. And he would drive around the town at night and pick up kids who were roaming the streets and take them home. Uh, and say, what are you doing out? You know, rather than pick them up and, and charge them with something, he'd say, go home and, and make sure you go to school tomorrow. 
the crime rate actually came down in that town significantly when he was based there. He's now moved on and the crime rate has gone back up again. So I learnt that individuals can make a difference. I found out that courts full of drama. I found them full of human interest. And even though they're not often reported on by the media, I think they're very well worth visiting. So if you're going on a country holiday or a road trip, I would encourage you to seek out a local courtroom in a town and stick your head in. Chances are if courts sitting for the day you would find it interesting and you are probably always likely to find someone to talk to if you drop into an outback courtroom. I hope that you enjoy reading my book. There are a lot more experiences that I've um, had and a lot more people I've spoken to in there. And um, I'll now turn it over to you to see if you've got any questions for me about the book or about my experiences. If you have some questions, um, please wait for the microphone to come around because this um, program has been podcast. Yes. Okay. So if no one has any questions, I'll nominate people to ask questions. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I have a question of understanding because I'm from Germany and my English is not so good as yours. What was this manager of the supermarket stealing? Okay. So, I, I so the question is, uh, what was the manager of the Burgess IGA um, supermarket in Kobar accused of stealing? IGA, sir, is a big supermarket chain and they have stores across Sydney and, and a big presence in country New South Wales. They are little chup-a-chup lollipops. They are this size. I'm holding up my pen here. They retail for about 60 cents each, I think, a dollar each. So, so he was accused of stealing goods probably worth... I don't know, a couple of hundred dollars? Lollipops. Two days of court time for the lollipops. <laughs> it's a good question if you're not familiar with chuppa chups. Does anyone else have any questions? Yes, sir. Thank you. I think you mentioned that things are getting worse rather than better. Um, how do we fix this problem? <laughs> Look, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I think... Th the main problems I saw were cuts to legal aid and uh, cuts, well, not cuts, but no diversionary programs in place. So people not ab able to get representation. And by diversionary programs, I mean for uh, drug offenders. There's no rehab in country towns or people have to travel four or five or six hours to a big regional centre and, and the beds are full. One thing I, I did see was an overlap and a link between the health system and the law in that magistrates are constantly sending people, they're saying, go and get a mental health plan done by your GP or um, go and seek some rehab treatment. But I've seen offenders stand in the court and go, I've been trying to get into my GP for months. I, I can't, I can't. So I see uh, the judiciary and, and health as sort of batting the problem um, back and forward. Uh, the difference made by individuals I saw was very committed individuals, magistrates, um, uh, local solicitors who did put a lot of their heart and soul into some of these towns and they did try to make a difference. Um, uh, funding for legal aid is, is a really big issue at the moment. Yeah. Thank you. Mori, do you have any questions? <laughs> I, can s I, I have a, a friend... Thank you. You grew up in a country town. Hmm. Hmm. Why did you choose the career you have? 
Oh, Maury's asking why I chose the career that I have. Um, I chose the career of journalism because I just love other people's stories. I think if you live in a country town, you know everyone's business and you want to know it. You're always asking about what people are doing or who owns that car outside the church. Or Even if you're not invited to someone's wedding, you can park outside the church and have a good look at what they're wearing and who's there. And I, I moved away from Cobar. I still go back there a lot. I moved away to pursue journalism and I actually fell into court reporting quite by accident. Um, I... One of the court reporters at the ABC left. They moved to Queensland a few decades ago and my boss said, oh, do you want to do the court round for a while? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, that'll be really dramatic and, and interesting. And then and then I was struck with terror. It was like, oh, what do I do? Where do I go? And I learnt, I learnt on the job. I, I taught myself. I learnt from other senior reporters. And now I, I, I'm very addicted to it. I, I've learnt so much about the law. I, you never know any everything about the law. There's always something new to learn. I'm not a lawyer. People sometimes ask me that. But I love the human interest of courtrooms. You see the very best and, and the worst of, of people in a courtroom. And it always gives me a, a sense of gratitude um, for myself. And I see how the right magistrate, the right solicitor, the right police officer can, officer can make a difference and actually can help someone turn their life around. That's right. And uh, I should say very quickly, Mori uh, is a very um, active uh, campaigner for animal welfare and animal rights. And one of the things I've written about in the book is uh, about animal cruelty cases in the country. It, it's quite horrific because um, the RSPCA or associated uh, bodies are sometimes a long way away when they get a complaint. So it can be six, seven hour drive. Um, to investigate a complaint, so a lot of it goes under the radar. And there is a lot of just gratuitous animal cruelty by young people, and it's like they it's normalised for them. I don't know whether it's boredom, showing off for their friends, I'm not sure, but, but I did come across some really horrible cases, and my one wish is that magistrates would be tougher on it and actually uh, impose tougher sentences because quite often they just uh, give people a fine or a good behaviour bond and it's increasing rather than, than decreasing. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh, we have a lady up the front. I don't need the microphone, really. It's not a question. I just yeah. wanted to say, I thought that was such a brilliant talk. You kind of gave us humour and drama and I think you probably really made us think because it's a world... Well, I certainly don't know. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. I hope you all have a safe trip home. Now, if I were in my hometown of Cobar today and there was this rain, people would literally be dancing in the street because it's this... Actually, they have had a lot of rain there lately, but there's this dry heat and there's so much drought around that part of the state. So um, rain is um, is wonderful. And uh, it's, it's ironic that in a city we complain about it and we go, oh, it's ruined our day. <laughs> but um, it, it, is, it is really special. I like the rain. Anyway, thanks everyone for coming out today once again. You're a lovely audience. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.com dot
www.ac.org.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.